Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What an amazing episode that you guys are about to listen to. We talked to Paolo Arduino, who is the CTO over at Bitfinex. Yes, that's right, Bitfinex. We talked about such intense, fun subjects, breaking down myth versus fact. We talked about the history of Bitfinex, how it started, and how it evolved from something so bad to something so good, and how they are celebrating, almost celebrating their eight-year anniversary. Paolo is so upfront and honest with his information and what we talked about. Uh, The stories were so great. We got exclusive access of in the room of how some of the decisions that Bitfinex had to make over the past eight years were made. I do not want to spoil it for you. Listen to my ads and you better be here when I get back. I'm Charlie Shrem. You're listening to Untold Stories. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. I'm super excited to share that we're now working with Bitpanda here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is a leading European platform for investing in digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker with over a million users. How cool is that? You can not only trade crypto like Bitcoin and Ether, but you can also trade digitized gold and around 30 other digital assets. What's amazing about Bitpanda is how easy it is to set up an account within minutes and get going with the minimum amount of just one euro. So make sure you check out Bitpanda. They are a sponsor of Untold Stories. I love them, especially if you're in Europe or anywhere in the world, bitpanda.com. Thank you so much, guys. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. 
But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. The year is 2011 and people in the Bitcoin space, I say Bitcoin because there was no crypto back then. It was just Bitcoin. People in the Bitcoin space, traders especially, are starting to become disenfranchised and unhappy with the suite of exchanges that existed at you know at, at that time in those days. All we had really was Mt. Gox and a few other smaller exchanges. And you had a group of amateur traders. You had people that were buying and selling and holding, uh, OTC dealers. And I'll talk about OTC and why they were so important to those early days and, and, and what that even means. But... Um, you know the crypto space, the, the Bitcoin space was growing, but the, the 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 trading mechanism and where we were doing our trading and price discovery wasn't working. And born out of this, born out of this was an exchange that is probably one of the most well known companies in the Bitcoin space and now in the crypto space. And in, in, in a household name, Bitfinex was born in 2012. And we're very fortunate here to have on the show today, the chief technology officer, the CTO of Bitfinex, Paolo Arduino. Thank you so much, Paolo, for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for having me. It's a, a big pleasure for me. I want to. I'm happy that you're here on the show today because a lot of what we talk about is, is stories and technology. And being the CTO, um, you could probably enlighten us and talk to us about um, the early days of Bitfinex. I know you jumped into the company in 2014 as a as a developer, but what was the state of the technology um, on on day one when on your first day working at the company? I mean, what were your first thoughts? Take us. Take us there. Take us to the place. I know you probably work from home or I know the company is based all over the world, but take me on like day one when you first finally pulled the curtain and you decided to, to, to work and, and work with all, all the people uh, in the company and work on the technology and the state of the Bitcoin world in those days. Tell me what that was like. Uh, sure. So at the time, I was, uh, was end of 2014, uh, around November. 
I had my uh, startup in London. Um, I was working in finance with hedge funds, uh, traditional finance. And um, one of the customers of my company was uh, current uh, Bitfinex and former, well, uh, Bitfinex CFO uh, Giancarlo De Vazzini, one of the brightest persons that I ever met. Um, we, we, we started discussing because he had this great exchange between X was one of a kind. And, um, but he had, uh, some problems with the platform. There were a moments when the trading engine couldn't cope with, the uh, uh, demand of, of the market. So that's, that's a, I want to pause for one second. So what you just said was that the trading engine couldn't cope with the demands of the market. In fact, that's a very important statement because almost every single, in fact, I would venture to every single company in the crypto space in the past 10 years has had to and is still currently dealing with that. And so what you're telling me is that you were constantly on the defense. You couldn't play offense. You had to play defense constantly because the trading engine couldn't keep up. Yeah, you know, we we had... Um, at that moment, there were moments where the number of orders that were sent to the matching engine were too many for it to handle them in a reasonable amount of time. So we had to uh, reject the um, certain orders to or to uh, anyway delay the execution, and that was really bad, right? You want if you are running a trading strategy, if you want to to handle uh, your uh, your investments, you need to make sure that if you click a button or you send an order through an API and it gets executed within a reasonable amount of time. And that is like one second or one millisecond that is more likely, right? You want to have it executed as fast as you can. Then we, at that time, we had, of course, uh, some um, slowness in, in our machine engine. So that's why I uh, came on board to try to help uh, the situation. So I, I clearly remember my my first call with uh, Giancarlo and uh, CSO at that time. That was Phil Potter, um, uh, a person of uh, huge knowledge uh, and uh, that I uh, really respect. He told uh, he told me a lot of things. Um, and, um, you know, we started discussing and they were almost... Um, they decided to to start integrating um, an external uh, vendor uh, was called Alpha Point into into Bitfinex, and uh, so my initial role was trying to integrate uh, Alpha Point matching engine into Bitfinex in order to cope with the demand of, of Bitfinex customers. So this, so what year was this? Two thousand fourteen. So the process took from end of 2014 till uh, April 2015. The integration of AlphaPoint never reached production because we had um, different uh, setups. But so, it probably taught you a lot of lessons. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, so I think that I had a great experience with, uh, with um, AlphaPoint developers. Uh, the, the problem there is that... Um, Bitfinex was designed in a way that was not easily to adapt to AlphaPoint, and AlphaPoint had to develop the margin system 
that was customized on our needs. And you can see how that can be challenging to basically rush into this kind of integration with the risk that everything falls apart. Yes. And when you're talking about a lot of money, you have to make sure that everything is working, even in your test beds. And so I want to I want to talk about that for a second. If if someone were to go to Bitfinex right now, um, and I'm not telling you this as a compliment. Well, it, it is a compliment, but I um, it's more of a statement. If someone were to go to Bitfinex right now and let's pretend they're new to the space and they're told by their friends or whoever they want, their trader or, you know, they dabble in stock trading and stuff and they want a, an exchange that offers leverage as good liquidity and volume. And so, of course, they go to Bitfinex. So if someone goes to Bitfinex.com right now, creates an account, passes through KYC very quickly and and starts trading, this person today who doesn't know that the past, you know, eight years of history of Bitfinex, and congratulations, you guys are going to be celebrating, if not already, an eight-year anniversary. That's a long time for a tech company. But I guess what my, state, my, what my statement was, this person wouldn't know that the platform that they think is amazing right now had to go through probably dozens, if not many, many dozens of iterations and changes and fixes and updates, and it's probably still not finished, but you were very much part of that. Yeah, I, so, you know, when, when it was uh, May 2015, um, I look at the complexities that we were facing and in agreement with AlphaPoint, we decided to part ways and I suggested to Phil and Giancarlo to um, give me the chance to improve and start uh, in rewriting the matching engine on my own. So my main role was taking our, uh, it's funny to say, but uh, uh, my SQL based matching engine to a proper matching engine based on queues and in-memory uh, trees. So <laughs> that was one of the most amazing things that uh, I was able to work on. So. In a few days, we were able to improve the performance from uh, by 10 times. And by the end of the year, it was 100 times the performance. Well, it was kind of easy. You can imagine that we were able to match um, less than 100 order per second when I joined it. So you can see that in reaching out um, 10,000 order per second was not so complex, given the room of improvement. But that was actually uh, possible with um, with uh, with my effort, that was my solely focus for the rest, almost the rest of 2015. And another really funny thing is that if I'm not sure if you remember, but by the end of 2015, Bitfinex order books were only refreshing every uh, 30 seconds, and you can tweak it to five seconds, and were only being refreshed by REST AJAX calls. That was, I mean, if you think about it, it's like four years ago and is, it seems like really primitive, but we were in that situation and still we were offering a good service by the end of uh, 2015 also, well, even before, because running um, kind of a leveraged market with all the um, calculations and all the liquidation processes was quite complex. The Bitfinex at the team at that time was composed by three people and it was the third person, right? So, and so it, it, the story of Bitfinex is always being lean company, really focused on technology. Never raise money, right? Started up on your own, we'll raise money down the road, but I'm saying the company was self-started for many years and self-funded. Yes, I mean, 
you know, if you have, if you are in Bitcoin business and you are a Bitcoin believer, you were making so much money with your job that you didn't need to raise money. Of course, if you had, you started to hire tens or um, hundreds of developers who quickly were going to need money. But we were really cautious in adding people to the company because it, yeah, of course, it creates more uh, resilience and give more um, time to, uh, let's say, improve things and uh, makes people also a bit more, uh, a bit less stressed, but also decrease and to a certain extent security and uh, also increase the complexity of, uh, of a company in general. So right now, still today, the, the, the entire training team doesn't even uh, account for 30 people, including quality assurance and, um, and uh, design. Until Bitfinex launched in 2012, there was only one other exchange before, and we could talk about that after, that offered leverage and margin, margin trading. Now, I want to tell you, I'm not a trader. I don't come from a trader background, and I don't really understand, although I, I studied economics, I don't understand, I never really understood the intricacies of margin and margin trading and leverage trading. Can you tell me, can you tell us why margin and leverage trading are so important and, and were so important at that time and still are, but without it, the crypto or the Bitcoin space and, and the trading world couldn't grow and expand and price discovery would never be considered even real. And I would even go a step further further and tell you, Paolo, that um, behind closed doors, I've talked to people who've tried to get Bitcoin ETFs, exchange-traded funds in the United States launched. And one of the most important things they told me, and this is years ago, there are other problems now, but one of the most important things they told me that for a healthy market, for an ETF to be launched, you need a healthy market. And for a healthy market to exist, you need to have leveraged trading. Can you tell me why that is? Well, I think that the most important thing is shorting. If you don't offer the ability to people to short a coin or an instrument in general, you miss the ability of proper uh, price discovery. Because the only thing that you can do then is buy and hold or you sell it, of course, but you don't have the possibility to bet, to bet against an asset. And it's a big problem, right? Because you want to have, you want to let people not be exposed to certain particular assets. In fact, with margin trading, you can have collateral that is USD. Okay, so so before margin trading, um, you're only you before margin trading, you could only have exposure to an asset. You could only have the exposure to the appreciation of an asset and not the depreciation. So if you can't bet on that instrument or asset going up end down, then you'll never have true price discovery. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Um, you said it in a much better way than me, but uh, it's exactly right. Well, that's why it's my show, though. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so, so that that was so important, and it's, it was very difficult to do. It still is. You know, if you're in a new exchange and you want to launch you know, a spot trading exchange, that's one thing. But if you want to launch an exchange and offer uh, leverage trading margin, being able to go like even 5x or 10x uh, um, on your on your trade, be able to short and long, um, that's a whole nother ballgame. That's, that's very difficult. Let's go back to 2011 for a second. So there was an exchange um, called Bitcoinica, and uh, they were... So for those listeners who don't know, Bitcoinica 
And I wouldn't even categorize them as an exchange. Bitcoinica was a um, a platform, a technology platform that was launched by someone who was really smart in technology, but he was a kid. I think he was like 16 years old. And um, they were the first exchange to launch leveraged trading, but it was more of an experiment. And the platform uh, was, was not really okay. There was a lot of holes and, and riddled with um, um, problems. And in fact, one of the largest hacks that we know today, 122,000 Bitcoin were stolen from Bitcoinica in 2011. And in fact, I still don't, I'm still lost some of that money. Like I'm still literally in, uh, I, I had a, a hedge fund guy last week, dude, call me and say, can I buy your claim? And I totally forgot <laughs> about this claim. It's like nine years later. So, okay. So why am I bringing this up? The reason I'm bringing this up is because people need to understand that whenever you have something negative, something positive will always come out of it. You know, when one door closes, another door will open. That's, it's been, you know, you you probably heard that quote since you were a kid. It's just, a, it's just one of those things. Bit, Bitfinex was born out of the, uh, Bitfinex was born six months after the Bitcoinica hack. It was born out of the need to have a professional Bitcoinica. But from day one, you know, Bitfinex was 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 dealing with the backlash of Bitcoinica and people kind of saying that there's similar code base, but but nowadays that's that's simply not true. Can you clear up some of these some of the early day uh, information? Of course. Uh, so uh, Raphael Nicole, um, uh, former CTO of Bitfinex. By the way, Raphael also lost money in some of these early dude. The early days, people don't realize there were so many fucking scams and Ponzi schemes. I can name you three of them that I lost money to, and Raphael also lost a bunch of money too on one of them. Like, dude, we we were losing money left and right. There were so many scams and Ponzi schemes. That's just how it was. That was the Wild West. Yeah, you had to use an exchange or a platform and uh, do the sign of the cross. And hope that everyone everything was going well for, for a while, you know? It's true. It's true. But, uh, you know, um, Raphael is a really smart guy. Uh, I met him in 2014 as well. So he t- told me a bit the story um, of, of Bitfinex before I, I joined it. And, yeah, he, he, he took the code and he fixed the security issues that basically led Bitcoinica uh, to, his, uh, to its troubles. And um, from there, he started uh, changing widely the code base, code base. So the moment when I joined uh, uh, Bitfinex, the code base was actually really different. I made some, some researches myself because, of course, when you start working with, I don't know, with a company, you, you, you want to make sure that uh, it is a solid company and nothing bad will happen. So um, what did you find? Yeah, that, well, the, I find that uh, most of the code base was, was changed. All the relevant parts, all the uh, it was a Ruby on Rails application. All the relevant models were cleaned up, and um, all the database structure, most of the database structure was changed. The backend processes were 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 changed as well. So of course there were a few lines of code that were non-meaningful that were still the same. But um, I think that the amount of work that was put to rewrite from scratch. Uh, during the first two years of uh, of life of Bitfinex was quite remarkable. Tell me more about those days. I mean, tell me more about things that you found in in, in your first few months working for the company. So um, the first few months, I, I was basically uh, 
working on a machine engine, but I was still already looking and trying to understand the weak spots of uh, of, um, of of the platform. For example, you know the the API um, queries were always directed to uh, the central database that was MySQL. So the optimization of MySQL was not really uh, properly done, in my opinion. So I came from a really strict computer science background. So, uh, you know, you start uh, itching when you see certain things. Um, but I also, I can uh, partially excuse that with, uh, with the... Um, with the fact that uh, the exchange was quite new when I came on board. And um, I want to ask you about that really quickly. Um, yeah. And this is not a question that I prepared. I, I'm just generally curious. I've always wondered how this works. So you have an exchange and you have millions of accounts, like Coinbase is a million accounts or 100,000 accounts. And you have you have tens of thousands, if maybe even hundreds of thousands of people trading dozens and dozens of different instruments in real time. So do you have like just one database that's constantly updating in real time, like a, like a SQL database or are there multiple or do you have redundancies? Like how does that work? And remember, you're talking to someone who is a script kitty when it comes to like, I just fuck around. My, my Python developing skills are, 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 are decent <laughs> enough to read, but, um, but like try to give me like a, like a education level one to 10, give me like a four or five. Sure. So, um, when it, I came into Bitfinex, it was actually like that. So you have a central MySQL database and all the API and uh, UI um, interaction was happening on that central database. And that is not really how you want to design a scalable application. First of all, there is always the need of a cache, caching layer. Um, so we introduced Redis as a heavy caching layer. And, but, you know, that, that is good till a certain point. I think one of the most uh, interesting um, things that we have in Bitfinex is the, our new architecture that uh, I start to deploy in production in early 2016 um, and uh, mainly after um, um, the end of 2016. That is actually a set of in-memory processes that keep that are synchronized by the matching engine with the ZeroMQ, that is one of the fastest um, networking libraries. So you have this whole set of in-memory processes that can feed in the interface, that can feed in the APIs, and the query is actually super fast, right? And you can have as many as you want of them. So you don't have to always actually query um, a central server. You have all these... Um, Hedge servers that have real time, and when I say real time, is one millisecond uh, latency data. So you have to forget about the the central database. The central database is to record data, data changes, and there can be some delay, right, on the uh, central database. You have a queue that accumulates all this, these changes, and they will eventually be uh, rewritten in the, on that central database. But since you want to offer the best experience, the fastest experience to your users, to uh, hundreds of thousands of users or million users, you have to have these in-memory processes that will that will keep serving super fresh data. That's very interesting. And in your opinion, uh, is this the most efficient way to do it? I know one of your your roles, and I want to I wanted to ask you about this later when we can come back to it. But one of your roles is evaluating new technologies, um, and we can kind of jump into that. Uh, what type of new technologies 
are on the horizon as it relates to exchanges and for you? And what other new technologies, you know, because as a as a technology officer, you know better than I do. What type of technologies should we be excited in Bitcoin that could be coming in the near future? We we're constantly hearing about about so many new technologies like Schnorr signatures and privacy and 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 uh, faster transactions and things like that. Um, I'm not sure if you're keeping up to date with these things, but in terms of timelines, what type of um, new technologies and updates can we see in Bitcoin and, and with Bitfinex? So when it comes to Bitcoin, I think that the m- most exciting thing for me is a Lightning Network. So I love um, you. That- <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. I'm a huge fan. of the. I think the user experience has a ways to go, but that's okay. It's not, me- it's not meant to be used by everyone, but I think that apps built on top of the lightning network like what you're gonna say i dude i totally interrupted you and i'm so sorry i'm sorry, I totally apologize no. but i think we'll see like venmo and and paypal type apps utilizing the lightning network and 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 the, the world will never know it like it'll just be better faster look good and using the lightning network but we'll never know it. but that's okay sorry i interrupted you again well, i'm a terrible uh, host no, but uh, I mean, I really appreciate that because I could feel your excitement as well. But I, I believe that from a pure uh, design point of view, uh, Lightning Network is a payment system and peer-to-peer payment system as it should be, right? I mean, I'm not saying from a philosophical point of view. I'm saying exactly from the technical point of view, if you want to create something that is cyberpunk, that is that carries to a world war, that can scale up to any number of transaction and nodes, you have the answer is Lightning Network. So there are no other ways around. So that is why I'm excited. I'm excited pure, purely from a technological point of view and from the fact that whatever happens in this world, you can have a system that uh, in a few years from now can be can resist to anything. Are you an ide- are you ideologically a cyberpunk? Uh, yes. I mean, tell me about you. You growing up in Italy? What? Where did you even hear that term from? You know, I so I had the mix of. Uh, so uh, let me tell you a bit my about my history. So I uh, grew up in a really tiny town in um, Italian uh, in Liguria Riviera, that is in upper uh, west side of uh, Italy, is on uh, on the seaside. It's a nice place, but it was my, my hometown was accounting for 500 um, uh, souls, so really small one. And it was on you know in in between uh, the hills and the seaside. And uh, my nearest friend was 10 kilometers from me, something like that. So uh, I, I didn't have I, I had my I was spending most of my time. Um, well, sometimes playing uh, outside in the fields uh, with my my grandpa, but most of the time I was um, I was inside. And so my my, my father bought um, uh, the first PC was I think an um, uh, one hundred and thirty three megahertz PC was around two uh, sorry uh, one um, nineteen ninety two ninety three if I'm not wrong. But at the age of eight, I had my first computer. And I, I started playing with, uh, with. What type of computer was it? Uh, it was um, a pencil. Uh, well, not pencil. It was an x86, uh, 133 megahertz with, I think, 16 or 32 um, megabytes RAM. 
um, I started, well, first I had Commodore, of course, but the, I, the moment I started coding was, uh, was with that computer. So I started with BASIC and then suddenly uh, I, I moved to C because it was much more exciting. Uh, C was, um, was uh, offered, I, I started to C with, um, with the Fortran, um, um, uh, sorry, with the Borland compiler. And uh, I mean, I spent most of my afternoons uh, playing with it because there was nothing else to do. Um, so, uh, and uh, you know, you, I, I was one of the first, probably the first person in my hometown to have internet. And it was really early. It was I, I had uh, ten years old. I had internet, so I started going online. Dial up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I started, I think, with um, was the um, eighteen thousand bouts. Um, um, I'm not sure if uh, you had that as well, but uh, it was really, really slow. And then moved to thirty six, and then fifty six, and then sixty four kilobit per second it was a really big jump. I remember that uh, for, <laughs> for 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 my internet. And the only thing that I could do I, was actually uh, no uh, trying to download uh, uh, Linux. I was really a big fan of Linux from, from since the beginning, and um, of course dual boot because otherwise my 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 father was shooting me if I was 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 going to erase his Windows partition, but I we had dual boot and I was playing around uh, all the afternoon while I was at work. Do you remember a world where and I know like my parents and grandparents will say something different, but do you remember a world where to get music in the in the internet age, there was no streaming services, there were no purchased downloadable music so you had just cds right and you had just cds and cassettes and stuff and then but we lived in an internet age we did stuff on the internet yeah we had slow internet but we still did stuff and then the market and people wanted the ability to download music on the internet they never said hey we don't want to pay for it we just said we want it and of course the first ones that come online are like LimeWire, Napster, all these places where you illegally download music and movies. And then you had all the, the music and movie companies suing Napster and people are going to jail and getting fined. And then born out of that technology are companies like today, like Spotify, where most people are more than happy to pay $8 a month to have a limited amount of music. It's so interesting how the technology evolves faster then people can can say what even they want. Yeah, I, I really clearly recall the moment. I mean, I, I came from cassettes, like uh, the Sony Walkman, and then moved uh, slowly to CDs. I'm a big uh, heavy metal fan, so I, I started having some Iron Maiden, Metallica CDs, uh, and was really uh, <laughs> was really cool. But, uh, but and um, I recall that uh, you know you the the where first the WAV files. And um, MP3s came quite uh, late. Well, I was a middle-aged kid at that point. I'm just curious, where, who invented the MP3? I know we're going off topic here, but I think it's a question that most people would love to hear the answer to. Do you know? Uh, I, I actually don't know. I recall that I was reading about that, but uh, I don't recall the, the, who did or the exact person or company. Was was MP3 you know? the first like standard um, for, for, for files, like for music files, or was it something different? So I think that the first files that I got was WAV files, uh, W-A-V files. So they were basically pure rip, uh, rip off of uh, CD, right? Uh, 
So you could take a let's say a song or a recording, and you could you can convert one to one, non compressed way into a web file, and that was usually um, demanding because the the lines were really terrible, right, at that time. Yeah. So the compression was one of the most important things that came quite quickly as soon as people understood that we needed something better. Why am I not surprised that MP3 was invented by a bunch of Germans? <laughs> they invent everything good. I'm reading about well, it now. You're reading, Wayne's reading about it too here on, on, on my monitor. They know that's so funny. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. All right, so I hope you didn't skip my ad because in the early part of the episode, we talked about how Bitpanda is working with us here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? I'll tell you why, so don't skip. Basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech you're used to from Bitcoin to other digital assets. So, for example, you trade real precious metals like gold and silver on their platform 24-7 with ultra-low fees. And what's really cool is that you can trade gold and silver and these other precious metals with other assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos that they support. So in a nutshell, Bitpanda is advocating the tokenization topic. So they want to bring financial products like stocks, ETFs, and more to everybody who uses their platform anywhere in the world. So check them out, bitpanda.com. Support my sponsors. Have a great day. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years 
working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. Um, okay, so let's let's jump back to Bitcoin for a second. So when when Bitfinex launched, one of the first, and I don't know if it's still true today, one of the someone said to in an interview and said, "So how is Bitfinex different from Bitcoin?" It could be, and the reason people kind of compared those two was they were the really only the two exchanges at the time that were even seriously enough to to be taken seriously. So someone asked that, um, and the answer that was given was, "Bitfinex won't have a hot wallet, rather." It will um, settle at the end of every day, and therefore there's no hot wallet to hack. Was that a good idea, and is it still in effect today? Uh, it is. So right now, uh, Bitfinex keep uh, a limited amount of funds on a hot wallet. The vast majority can be from 97% to 99% are in uh, cold wallets on um, on uh, air gap machines or hardware wallets because you it's you don't want to get exposed uh, funds so much exposed on the exchange directly. Even if we, our security is uh, is uh, really uh, best in class. Um, there, the the machine we own the hardware, so we we don't use uh, any more cloud services like AWS, or we partially use them for edge services. The we we prefer to own our own hardware to um, to install our operating system make sure that it goes on bare metal because uh you know security uh, when it comes when it comes to managing someone else's money is is the most important thing so um that is basically what it is it is today we we only you know bitfinex is known to not be the fastest to send out funds sometimes because we we ensure that on the hot wallet there is enough to fulfill the withdrawal, the pending withdrawals, and a few and just a bit more. That's it. Um, so if there is um, a too many, too much in the hot wallet, it gets immediately swept to the cold wallet, and only a manual operation between multiple signers will refill it. So we take that really seriously, and we don't want to have prominent uh, problems in um, uh, on on the security side. Um, so we saw many times when where too many funds were held on hot wallets and that end up. Basically. Yeah, of course. I mean, in the past 10 years of, of Bitcoin's existence, almost every exchange has been hacked at some point. In fact, even BitInstant, my company that I ran from 2011 to 2013, at one point, uh, almost 30 percent of, of all volume in the world was going through us. I mean, but we were hacked, too. And someone actually very smartly, I don't know how. Uh, actually, I do know how because he sim swapped me back then. Um, was able to um, wait until I was on a plane 
before trying to reset all my passwords. This is in 2012, I think. So it's happened to every... I know, it's a crazy story, right? I should tell that story. If I only had a podcast called Untold Stories to tell my own stories... No, that's, that's actually what I do. Half the time I tell my own stories. But I want to ask you a question. So um, every, every exchange has, has security flaws. Every exchange has been hacked. And in fact, the few that haven't, I almost ask myself... When? Because it, it has to happen. And when it does, you learn from it. So the question is that I have for you is this hot wallet mechanism, has that prevented you? Has that prevented hacks from being worse? Has that prevented things from actually happening? And um, what are some other tech, technology redundancies that you put into place or honey traps or things like that to prevent hackers from coming in? Of course, I know there are things that you probably can't tell us. Um, but what are some things that you can? Uh, sure. So first of all, uh, the exchanges. So there is a big difference by exchanges that never been hacked or exchanges that never have been publicly hacked, right? So oh, um, so good, I, I didn't want to say that, reason. but I know that's true. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Well, sorry to say that. <laughs> no, it's true. But I think it's true. Right? So, well, I mean, I don't have any. Um, no, no, no. Uh, I'll, I'll say saying... it, it's true. It's definitely true. Like, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but I mean, it's it's got to be true. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, it happened, but you can think that it might have happened. Right. If you can, of course, if the you can, you are able to, to damage uh, the, the problems, you might you might be able to do that. Unfortunately, it was not the case of Bitfinex. When 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 it happened Bitfinex, of course, uh, all the bells and whistles around in the entire community. So and was not even a question, right? And, uh, trend, even if um, sometimes we get blamed for for transparency, we were quite uh, um, transparent back then. Even, but uh, anyway, I think that uh, hot and cold wallet is the best mechanism to prevent um, hacks in general, because. Even if in the worst case scenario, and an axe cannot be only uh, external, right? Also internal. You want to make sure that there is not too much money on the exchange to raise uh, interest from uh, from the outside. Yeah, and it's like it's like someone you know. You live in a neighborhood and you want to set up a security system. If someone's trying to rob your house, they're going to figure it out. But essentially, you want to to have good enough security that the hacker or the, the thief says, I want to go to someone else's house. Yeah, and you don't show all your, go all, uh, your go gold bars um, through your, um, um, uh, I don't know, the, the house um, window, right? The, you, the, the hackers might want to know or will know that they are in a safe box in a really secure bank. If you show them all the goodies that you have, they are more interested to hack you. And so I think that um, um, and is... Clearly, it is clear that uh, cold wallets on a hair gap machine or hardware wallets and uh, with multisig are really, really another story, right? So hackers might um, will go towards the, the weakest points that are online wallets rather than trying to break the security of a multisig uh, cold wallet. So I think that is, um, is, is works really well and uh, it didn't let uh, us to have any further issues. And um, also, you know, we have full reconciliation system in, in, uh, in, on the platform. We use multiple nodes for each blockchain to make sure that we don't have one single source of truth. We have um, real-time reconciliation. So if there is any issue with any accounting, we get immediately alerted. We stop withdrawals and uh, deposits. So 
everything we have all the kind of best bells and whistles um i personally never traveled uh, too much for long distances i never for example personally been outside of europe because the moment that uh, i started to um have that kind of allowance then it's the moment i started to be involved in bitfinex and i don't want never want ever to leave my ship alone so i'm really taking that seriously it's like my my um duty i feel that you disoive me that i don't if since i i'm um, uh, responsible of uh, of looking uh to, towards other people money i want to make sure that i'm always there always available i never took one day of holiday and i will never do until i'm in charge you need to take a vacation dude <laughs> you need to do it you for know, your health like even a day yeah i know but i mean i am having a lot of fun can here. i tell you what and i want to do i want to do this i want to get a like uh, i have to talk to my wife about to see what she thinks but i want to get like a flip phone that has no internet only <laughs> sms and phone calls and so when we have like dinner just me and her i take that and not my cell phone um for emergencies <laughs> or whatever this way i'm not you can have a nice startup you know, the Motorola's? No, someone invented it. It's called the light phone, but they're charging like a crazy amount of money for it. And I said, why don't you just go to the local convenience store and you can buy one for like 10 bucks. You don't need, <laughs> there's not a whole thing. Um, okay, so let's go back. Uh, let's go back eight years ago again. And I don't know if this was a, uh, I don't know if this was a, like a preset. Um, I don't know if this was a uh, conversation the company had in advance or like a, a policy of the company, but Bitfinex took an approach of what I like to call extreme transparency. And what I mean by that is um, your staff, and in fact, you had someone whose job was to like full-time just be on uh, Zane Tackett, to be on Reddit, to be on the blogs, on forums, a community engagement. Uh, Phil Potter, your chief strategy officer, uh, worked very closely with uh, the Whale Club, which was is, is still is a huge group of traders uh, in the Bitcoin space. So what I mean by extreme transparency is you guys basically took an approach as of, hey, we're not going to be like, let's just say Coinbase, for example, and everything that we say has to go through like 15 lawyers. Instead, we want to talk to our users. We want to talk to our users constantly. If something good happens, we want to talk to our users. If something bad happens, we want to talk to our users. So I feel, in my opinion, this has been a double-edged sword. It has been really, really good in transparency, but it also um, makes it very difficult to prevent FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt from coming out because when you're trying to play defense and arguing against all these different rumors in real time, you kind of get lost in the weeds. And uh, the other way is if you let things die down and then you come out with a statement, um, it may be easier. But but at the, at the same time, I don't like that other approach too. So there's a lot of like myth versus fact that we can discuss. But I guess, what are your feelings on that approach? Do you think it has worked? Does it ebb and flow? Is it better sometimes and worse other times? What are your feelings about that? Yeah, uh, I think that uh, you, you raise a really good point. So um, Phil was um, really um, well known uh, back in time on um, uh, Wellpool um, uh, TeamSpeak channel. He was really uh, often going there, discussing about uh, problems or good things that we were doing. And I think that it was a really good approach because, you know, Bitfinex never had 
a marketing or a PR person till this September. No, you never did. And when I got an email from your PR person, I was a little surprised. <laughs> I said, who's this person? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we never had the marketing team. I mean, we, we were we were just, uh, well, guys that technological guys that were attached, were running a touch first company, always with their heads down, working on creating cool stuff. And basically, the the artifacts of those that good stuff were directly talking to the community. Uh, without not many filters, I would say sometimes was good, sometimes was bad, of course. But we were, I, I think, we were really open. But um, you know, um, that was uh, the fact that we only went on certain channels was taken by the, the the rest of the community, especially the new people that were coming on board in 2017, 2018, as a fact of really lack of transparency. So basically Bitfinex was in the tether where uh, deemed as uh, really non-transparent companies because we were we were just talking with a smaller set of community or not not talking too much at all because we were so focused on our on our business. Well the entire arrest of the other company where had like PR people, like 30 people, 30 um, uh, employees in the marketing team. I mean, we have four today, uh, two on the PR side and two on the marketing um, team side. So it's still four. It's still really small compared to competition. No, it's extremely small. So do you yeah, think that strategy was better then and not as good now? I mean, you guys have a PR company. Uh, why is social media Why is social media an important strategy uh, here to like decide certain channels? I mean, what, what kind of changed in the Bitcoin space over the years where you guys are now saying, hey, we need to adopt a different strategy? So, well, it is better now in a sense that it means that Bitcoin is going mainstream. So we don't, cannot expect that everyone has the same understanding, the same, the same knowledge of the, the, the crypto space that uh, someone that, uh, like us that is, is in there since a lot of years had. So I think that is fair to say you need to approach and use more uh, traditional um, a system to talk with uh, your uh, enlarged community. Now you have millions of users and everyone expects the same standards. Everyone expects to have the COC, CTO um, uh, to talk publicly, to go on Twitter, to be on Twitter, to, to say- Or even being on this show. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, <laughs> that, I think that is, a, I, I'm personally a really shy person. And I saw the necessity of, of expose myself uh, more on the social media and um, doing podcasts because I, I understand that uh, the, the reality of things is that if you don't talk publicly, people think that my, you might have something to hide. And uh, that's why, I mean, the, the fact that you are giving me this space or I'm going on Twitter is, uh, I think, is a really good thing, uh, even though I'm, as said, by, by definition, a shy person. Um, I think that uh, our marketing team now is doing great. Uh, they are just, you know, um, looking at uh, them being already just introduced in this space, but they are doing a great job and we are trying to adapt uh, and compete with companies that are doing this since more time than us. And I think that, but I think that uh, our team is just four people, but is really lions. They are really great persons. They know how to handle difficult situation or create 
uh, amazing uh, campaigns. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, with, with the, within the next months, you will see that more. That's very interesting. Um, and so on the, you know, on the theme of, of debunking myth versus fact, um, I want to talk about uh, a few different a few different topics. So one of the first things I want to ask you, and we don't need to spend too much time on it, is um, the whole saga of of crypto capital. So, and I want to give you a little bit of background. I actually remember in two thousand and um, I think it was like two thousand and fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I forget the exact year, but I remember when um, I met. Um, I was in Panama and I actually met some people who were uh, working with crypto capital and I thought the idea was great and the idea is great uh, and it's kind of a shame how things turned out. But I want to ask you about the concept of crypto capital and why it was important because let's go back for a second. The market will the market finds demand and when there's a demand, when the market needs something or wants something, the market will create something. And so crypto capital was created out of a need for banking in the crypto space. And it served a really good purpose for many years. It allowed you guys to 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 work in fiat and accept dollar deposits around the world. What what kind of happened? And you know, from what you can tell me, did did things start off really good and eventually this company started being shady? Or were they always kind of like operating in the gray area? Oh, well, uh, from what I can tell, I mean, I'm not uh, directly exposed to this problem and was not directly involved in in the, that relationship. But what I can tell is that, first of all, you are you are absolutely right. Crypto capital served a need of uh, our um, of the crypto community because not just you, other companies too. You are the victim here, but I know other victims too. There were other companies. Um, that also worked with crypto capital. That's, but it's not talked about a lot. But, you know, I mean, banking problems are uh, quite common in the crypto industry. It's, I keep hearing a lot of people till in 2019 that get their bank account shut down because the banks are afraid to, to deal with anyone that trades or it works for a crypto company. And that is a shame, right? So crypto capital was fulfilling that kind of need. And they had all the licenses. So we, we did a thorough um, due diligence on them when we started to use them, and uh, they had all the um, right cards to serve our customers. So um, eventually, um, the money, the, the funds were frozen, and um, people say that, uh, you know, there are 80, $850 million that are lost. They are not lost. They are frozen. They are frozen in different jurisdictions because, you know, if uh, you have the, the money, let's say that you are a customer or one of the top tier banks, HSBC or whatever, right? And they commit, uh, you are just a customer, right? And they, they commit something nasty. Um, I mean, you are the victim, right? It's not your fault that they did it. They, they commit not something nasty. And I'm not saying that crypto capital did that, did something shady. But I'm just saying that uh, we don't have yet any proof, uh, or at least I don't have any proof, in the sense that I'm not a lawyer and I not uh, I don't have any proof that crypto capital did something shady. But even if they did, Bitfinex X is just a pure bitmic here. I mean, if you are a customer of a bank and that bank that does something uh, some wrongdoing, uh, you 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 are supposed not to not be affected by that problem. You 
course, you, you, you keep thinking that your funds are safe. So we have, we are working in all the jurisdiction and we have a team, teams of lawyers in each jurisdiction that are working on the recovery uh, and the unfreezing of the funds. And we have, we are making our case in all these different courts. But that's what's, that's what's crazy is you guys are fighting for your users. And I want to say that this is not the first time that you guys said, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it. We're not going to take this lying down. We're not going to screw our customers. We're going to make our customers whole. And I want to, I want to ask you, um, I want to go back to, 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 and I forget when it actually happened, but do you remember a few years ago, uh, there was the, um, there was a hack and, and you could tell me more about it. And then you guys launched the, the, the BFX token. And I have to tell you, I, as much as I'm a fan of Bitfinex and I've been using Bitfinex for so long, I, um, I, I had some moral issues and I never do. I, I never like say to myself, like, you know, I have moral issues with B- with with something, but I had some moral issues, uh, morality issues with BFX with with lo- you guys launching your token. I'll tell you why, and I and I resolved it. It allowed it allowed me to have some very very good philosophical conversations. But um, but I had some some morality. Do you want me to tell you uh, why, or uh, why don't you first sure g- give me a little bit of background for our listeners who don't know uh, of you know like just for a minute. Uh, what was the BFX token? What happened, and, and and how did it have? How did you make it have such an overwhelmingly positive outcome that even people who weren't victims of the hack who bought BFX tokens ended up making money? Yeah, so that was one of the most interesting uh, part of Bitfinex history, I would say. So you no, know, after the hack, I I basically was elected CTO there. So. Um, first of all, the act happened between the uh, uh, the first and the second of uh, well, it was night, my uh, almost uh, early morning, really, really early morning, the second of August, two thousand sixteen, my time. So uh, I was waking up, and uh, you know, we first start investigating the issue. We found, uh, we basically we at the first for one or two days was really terrible. Like you feel really so so uh, so down. You 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 the, your your company is in a big trouble. It is the best job that you ever found, the best people that you could work with. So everyone feels terrible. Everyone is really, uh, I mean, the, the morale is, is uh, horrible. So we, we spent uh, the first few days in, um, in, in, in identifying the issue. And then after two days, we say, okay, what we do? Giancarlo and Phil uh, and uh, Stu, our legal counsel, I mean, they are, they, they were uh, lions. We, they were. They said we will not take this seat. Lions. We want to make our yeah. They they they, they said I, we want to make our customer whole. And I was with them, right? They said, Paulo, do you do you agree that you will take charge of all the technological side while we take charge of everything else and we start back again? Uh, um, do you feel comfortable in doing that? Say yeah, of course. Uh, let's do it. And we said, okay, I will. I took care of bringing back the platform in four days. I basically, I think that I didn't never sleep for for four days, and then they they basically said, okay, how, let's figure out how we can recover from this from a financial point of view. And I think that is was a brilliant solution from from the three of them, from Giancarlo especially, but Phil and Stu as well. They were they said, okay, what we can do? Let's let's figure out the right number 
to distribute, and I know that is really controversial, but distribute the, the loss evenly among the customers, proportionally among the customers. So uh, they came out with this haircut with of 30%. Okay, wait, that, so how, um, much, how much in dollar-wise or Bitcoin-wise was lost? 119,000 Bitcoin, that was a huge number. Wow, it and, still uh, is. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah, especially with this price. The price at that time was uh, 600, right? And the amount of uh, of, of loss was uh, was seventy two million dollars, if I'm not wrong, and uh, I mean it was a lot of money, especially for the volumes of 2016. Because remember, 2016 was still a, a really calm year, right? There was not big volumes in an entire not yet. month. That, the, it was the yeah. the accumulation stage right before the major bull run. Bull run, I remember. Yeah. So I mean, the money that you were making in 2016 was nothing compared to 2017. So we said, but it's, again, we decided to 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 this, to go back you know, on on track and 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 resume our operation. We came up with this thirty six percent of aircraft, and we created the BFX token. And, you know, <laughs> we started um, trading back. I think it was the eighth of August. So what was the BFX and- token for? Was it so? So you took a you basically distributed. Uh, the loss across all the customers, and you gave, and everyone basically took a thirty percent haircut. Is that what you were saying? Yes, everyone took an, a thirty-six percent. Okay, haircut. so if you had if you had ten thousand dollars in your account before, you now still have seven thousand, um, which is still yes. great. And then thir- the other three thousand dollars, you're going to have in value in BFX tokens, and it was basically one dollar per per token. That is correct. So the the initial price of the BFX tokens were uh, were one dollar, and we had this IOU that was called BFX that was a promise to buy back the the BFX tokens at one dollar always, or uh, we gave the, the the possibility to the holders in co- to convert that BFX into equity. Okay, so I want to pause you right there, and I want to tell you why. This that 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 whole scene, that whole scenario, that whole saga, I'm going to call it, that story is going to go down, you know, in history as one of the largest uh, socioeconomics experiments under Bitcoin. And I'll tell you why, because the concept of tokenizing debt uh, didn't didn't exist and. In, in, in the cryptocurrency space, and you were the first ones to do it and do it successfully. And it provided uh, an experiment because you had someone like me watching and you had a lot of people watching to see would this succeed or would this fail? And then let's go and let's go to, to, to why I had moral issues for a second. So I was, you know, I studied economics and and I major in economics and wherever I am, you know, whether I'm in prison or I'm home or wherever I am, I'm always watching with an eye uh, of an economist. And I could tell stories about crazy things that happened. But in my eyes, I was watching this and I was saying to myself, okay, so I like this concept. So let's just say you have a company and the company um, has investors and the company becomes insolvent. Uh because bad choices were made, you know, they took bets on certain technologies. Those technologies didn't work. The company lost some money. And now basically the company's going to their investors and saying, hey, guys, we're basically going to pay you back 50% of your money. And the other 50% is going to be tokenized debt. 
And we're going to do the same thing Bitfinex does. We're going to convert it at a certain price or you have the opportunity to convert into equity. And it's a great concept. It's a great idea because, it, you know, dude, dude, I'm still dealing with bankruptcy courts for two companies, Bitcoinica and Mount Gox, for over eight years. Eight years. Bankruptcy courts. Yeah. So what you did is so game-changing because it allows you to avoid bankruptcy courts. But this is the problem. This, is, this, this, is, this was the problem, and this is why I had more mm. morality issues with it. The problem that I saw was that it relies on good actors, it relies on good intentions, and it relies on the executives to have a lot of self-discipline on, on morality because there's no regulatory authorities at this point that would regulate this concept of tokenizing debt. So what you did, we're lucky that Bitfinex um, had and uh, still has executives and people that have good intentions, that have good morality, that are not out to scam, that are good people, that are transparent. But do you see how this can easily become something when where people don't have good intentions, that how this can easily become something that can become a scam? Um, and then my second problem is, how do we prevent, and you tell me your answer, how, and this is where my morality, how do we prevent companies from faking their bankruptcy or faking insolvency in order to buy back their own debt at pennies on the dollar. And what I mean by that is, let's go back to the example of the random company. How do you know the company is not scheming in the background and saying, hey, why don't we use this opportunity to tell our investors that we're insolvent when we're really not to basically make them think that they have to take this huge haircut and then buy these tokens back and then... Um, we're able to basically, you know, t uh, take a huge drawdown on our debt before we're about to embark on something big. How do you how do you prevent companies from doing that? So this is this was my morality issues, and I'll tell you after you give me your answer, I'll tell you how I came to terms with my morality and how I was able to finally sleep at night. Yeah, no, I get uh, both of the points that you make. Um, I think that, uh, uh, of course, and of course, I'm speaking from the. Bitfinex point of view, we would have uh, avoided the entire mess, the entire stress, the entire terrible moments that we pass, um, because we were making enough money and a lot of money, even with uh, even for 2016, uh, uh, and we didn't need that. But I can see why and how a company could do that, and uh, in a space that is not regulated, not get caught. So I, I don't have a good answer to that. I just think that. Um, Certain, Do you know I mean, what my answer thinking, is? Yeah. My answer yeah. is the market. I have to have trust and faith in the market. And the way I slept at night was I said to myself, if the market, if people are, you know, if, if, if people are stupid enough to fall for a scam like that, not you, I'm saying like, if someone were to create a fake scenario um, and with bad intentions, if people are not don't have enough due diligence and are not smart enough investors to look at the books and to make their own decisions, then maybe they don't deserve to be investors in the first place. So that's that's my answer. I'm a, like you. I'm a cyberpunk. I'm a free market economist, and I believe that markets are. <clears throat> I believe that markets are efficient, but only when we allow them to be. 
But the problem is, is that as humans, we want, you know, instant gratification. We want the market to be efficient today. But as we saw with the with, with the perfect example of the ICO bubble is that, you know, the, the positivity that we have in the market today and the things that we're going to prevent from happening down the road come from the mistakes that we had from the ICO bubble. And not that there were all mistakes. There were a lot, a lot, a lot of good, but there was also a lot of bad. But if those mistakes were never made, then how are we supposed to learn from it? So I'm a believer in the free market. That's just me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, your answer is is a good one. And um, yeah, being a liberal, extremely liberal myself, I see that, uh, that uh, I mean, markets should move um, in a completely free way. And people should, especially in this kind of market, should do a lot of due diligence, no fall for scams, um, really study, study a lot and, uh, and investigate. Otherwise, uh, we, we will basically let scammers um, get all the money that should go to really good projects and to, 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 to improve the speed of development of a good project. That's such an amazing message to end on because there's nothing I could say that would be better than what you just said. So take heed, uh, our listeners, take heed and listen. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Paolo, thank you so much for taking the time, especially because you have not taken one vacation day. You decided to give me an hour and six minutes of your time today for coming on the show. Thank you so much again. And I look forward to, to, to hopefully meeting you someday and talking to you again soon. That is great. Thank you very much, Charlie. Uh, it was a pleasure to be with you uh, on, on, on your podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.